Hey everybody, this is episode 140 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you for this intro on a Sunday. Excited to get my interview out for you today. I've got a really fascinating discussion with actually a sprinter this time. My my first sprinter to have on the show. We've got Johnny Dutch on the show with Evan Kidd. Evan Kidd is a filmmaker who actually made a documentary about Johnny Dutch's really interesting story, including his aspirations to make a U.S. Olympic team. And so we'll talk a lot about that experience. Interestingly, Johnny Dutch is also a filmmaker himself and an aspiring filmmaker who has a film degree from the University of South Carolina. And and so we'll talk about how he balances these two things sprinting at the highest levels on the track with making films, including recently he made his first feature film, which we'll talk a little bit about in the interview. So really interesting discussion, excited excited to bring it to you and to paint a picture for the world of sprints that you may not previously have understood and also get you excited to cheer for Johnny as it comes up for USA's next week and of course for his attempts to be on the Olympic team for Tokyo in 2020. Before I get there, a couple of quick announcements for what's coming up here. I've got a couple of episodes coming out this week. One will be a USA's preview, so we'll be previewing all of the events for USA's that will be happening next weekend in Des Moines, Iowa. So look out for that show midweek, which We'll be posting on Wednesday, and then next Sunday I'll be releasing a sort of different episode where I recap all of my inspirations and takeaways from my trip to Europe where I went to France to watch the Women's World Cup, as well as got to to do a trail race over there in the French Alps, and got to see the Monaco Diamond League meet in person where Sifan Hassan Ended up with a world record in the mile for the women. So lots to cover there. I'll be bringing James Dodds on to help me walk through those experiences. And it'll be a little bit of a different show, but I think you guys will enjoy some takeaways that I had from that trip that I'm eager to share with you. And so James will be helping interview me in a sense to talk about those things. So that's all coming up this week. One other quick note before we get to the interview is that I wanted to mention a giveaway we're doing for Rogue Expeditions, our running travel business. Allison Maxis has been on the show several times talking about what she does in running that business, and we are giving away a free trip to Morocco. Unfortunately, you have to be U.S.-based to win, and there's some other rules associated with that, but it's really simple to sign up. All you got to do is provide your your name and email address. You have to do that before August 12th in order to be entered for a chance to win. Again, that's for a free running trip to Morocco with our Rogue Expeditions crew. It's, uh, I think, one of our best itineraries, so would go check that out, get signed up. You can get signed up on the Rogue Expeditions website, which is at rogueexpeditions.com forward slash giveaway. So again, that's rogueexpeditions.com forward slash giveaway. In order to spell that, you're only doing one E in the middle. So it's R-O-G-U-E 
xpeditions.com forward slash giveaway, and you'll find all of the details to get signed up for that giveaway. Pretty exciting stuff. So with that quick bit of intro news, let's turn to my interview. Again, we'll be interviewing Evan Kidd, filmmaker who created the documentary Run of the Picture about Johnny Dutch. Johnny Dutch is a world-class 400 hurdler, has an NCAA championship to his name, has competed in the world championships, and is an aspiring Olympian. So this documentary follows that journey. And let's talk to Evan and Johnny about it. Welcome, Evan and Johnny Dutch to the show. How are you guys doing today? Hey, Chris, doing well. Thanks for having us. Yeah, doing pretty good today. We are excited to have you on. This is, as I mentioned in my intro, a little bit of a right turn. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're, on a, we're on an adjacent road, but kind of into some new territory, interviewing a sprint star as well as talking about filmmaking. But I think it's going to be a fun twist for the audience. So excited to have you guys for the discussion. I wanted to start actually talking a little bit about my recent trip to France. I got to go see the Monaco Diamond League meet. I'm going to do a full kind of recap episode of my experience in France, including my takeaways from the Monaco Diamond League meet. But because that's a meet, Johnny, that you have competed at, I believe you were there in 2015 leading up to the World Champs. You got third in the 400 hurdles in Monaco. I wanted to talk a little bit about the European track meet scene and just kind of go back and forth with you a little bit on that because it is so refreshing to go into a packed stadium like I just did on July 12th in Monaco with seats, you know, completely filled people going crazy over track and field. They've got Heineken being sold in the concession stands underneath the, you know, underneath the, mm-hmm. the seats. Mm-hmm. And you've also got a massive fireworks show at the finish, which I think would rival many 4th of July fireworks shows around here. So it was just a different experience, and I appreciated it because it took it to a new level for me in terms of watching track and field, which I already appreciate. But I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. You were just competing in Europe a little bit. How would you compare the European track scene with the U.S.? Uh, The European track scene is epic, (laughs) like especially the Monaco Diamond League meet. Um, That just took it up up a notch, a whole nother level for me once I um, started my first competition on the European circuit. I believe the Monaco was the first, um, my first European race um, after college. So I definitely opened my eyes to um, the level that athletics is on in other countries and they really appreciate athletics and they really treat it like a true sport, just like Americans, we treat uh, basketball and football. They really appreciate athletics. And so I love going over to Europe and competing. It's, It's really fun. Yeah, I think we have a lot to learn from the Europeans just in terms of the presentation. You know, it was a it was a two 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 hour affair. You know, everything moved really quickly. They didn't have all the events happening, so it was a more dynamic meet. Everything moved quickly, as I said. You had the top athletes competing, so there was always something big happening on the track. You had cheerleaders and dancers doing stuff between events. You had the fireworks. You had the beer being sold. I just feel like we could take it up a notch in the U.S. with our presentation of track and field. Absolutely. So we could we could learn a few things from the Europeans. Any chance that you checked the results for the Monaco meet? 
Um, I think I might have watched the 200 and the women's 400 hurdles. Um, I saw some highlights on my YouTube um, page. So those are the only results that I saw. But I, I've heard good things from the meet this year. I know they're running fast. You know, it's, it's yeah. yeah. So if you watch the 400 hurdles and you, you had to watch Sydney McLaughlin just absolutely blow away the field. She ran a world lead in that event at Monaco and a PR for her. And she's only 19, maybe 20 at this point. Mm-hmm. Already already has an Olympics under her belt. Yeah. As a distance runner watching her compete, it's a beautiful thing. It's art in motion. Yeah. As someone who's a hurdler, what's it like? Um, well, yeah, as far as speaking of Sydney, she's a phenom. She's like the, I would say she's, I tell everyone she's the next Allison Felix because she's super versatile and she can you can put her in any any event and she'll do well she can run with the best on a world-class level and that that shows that she's just in her own lane um and this and we're in the process of the change of the guard where you know the allison felixes and the Cyan richards and justin gatlin's they're on their way out and it's all about the new kids the noah lyles and the sydney's so um, these kids are stepping their game up. They're on a whole different level, and I'm kind of stuck in the middle. Like I'm still, I'm still in my prime, so I'm I'm racing the uh, the new kids, and they're they're bringing it. Um, but it, it's exciting to see these new kids, and they definitely help me step my game up because I'm like, okay, you know, just because of the the older cats, the veterans, they're 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 leaving out. I still gotta stay on my toes because <laughs> these new kids are not playing any games. It's like that middle child song by J. Cole. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they, they, they are not. And really, I mean, that's true across all levels, even in the distance events. And But Sydney, I don't know, it's something about watching her, she's just so smooth. Yeah. You know, and I don't, again, I don't know what the technical elements are that make her so good because I'm not versed in that world of hurdles, but but you just watch it and you and it just looks like i don't know fine wine pouring into a glass a crystal glass or something i mean it's just that beautiful yeah yeah she's fun to watch she's very fun to to watch and i i'll tell everyone i give her the allison felix like just that whole air or um, aura she just has that this aura about her her when she's online everyone's very attentive and that's what allison felix has um, but she has that, and, and that that comes around every 10, 15 years, and so I think she's it. Yeah, calm, cool, and collected. Yeah. One thing I wanted you to help us explain to the audience is about four hundred hurdles. You know, and I didn't know as much about it until I was really prepping. I, I was able to watch the trials in twenty sixteen and be there in Eugene, and wanted to make sure that I knew everything I could about all the different events. And so I started digging into different things, including hurdles and started at least getting into a little bit on technique with hurdles, which is that, you know, you've got 45 meters to the first hurdle, 35 meters between hurdles, 10 hurdles and 400 meters for your event, 40 meters from the last hurdle to the finish line. But I didn't fully understand the fact that you guys are counting steps between hurdles and for the men, from what I understand, it's 13 to 15 strides between hurdles. And whether you're doing even strides versus odd strides, that affects how you go over those hurdles from a lead leg perspective. There's a lot that goes on from a technical side 
that is just very prescriptive and planned out that you don't really think about when you're just running a normal sprint event. So explain that a little bit for the audience. Yeah, um, the 400 hurdles is a very technical, strategic race. Um, you can be a great 400 flat runner. Um, you can have great stamina as an 800 runner. But if you're not technically sound, um, it doesn't matter. Uh, and the 400 hurdles is all about having a pattern that works for you and your stride length. Um, I know for me, I do 13 steps all the way to the fifth hurdle, and then I alternate 14 steps to the uh, seventh hurdle, and then I go switch down to 15. I know Felix Sanchez, who uh, used to be my coach, you know, he told me his was around 13, 14, and then he was 15 home because he's a little bit shorter than me. I'm 5'11, he's around 5'9, kind of 5'10 ish. Um, and then you have the taller guys um, like Rob Benjamin, they're like 6'3, 6'4, Javier Colson, and they take 13 steps almost all the way around the track. Also, Joshua Anderson, he used to do, to do 13 all the way around the track. So I think it, it just it's just a matter of how big your stride is. Um, but I know for me, um, I can run a 48-second 400 and then the next week run a 48-second 400 hurdle. So <laughs> um, for me, it, I love having um, an obstacle in front of me. It just I'm more aggressive when I have a hurdle in front of me. And a lot of people don't get it. Um, they say, you know, you run 47 in the 400 hurdles, you should be able to run, take three seconds off, run 44, 43 seconds. But I think it's more mental than anything for a 400 hurdler. So when I run the 400, you know, I'll run 46, 45 high, um, but then run 47 in the 400 hurdles just because I'm, I'm just more aggressive with the hurdles. Well, hurdlers are also a different breed. I mean, I think about it in distance running and, we kind of all look side-eyed over at the steeplechasers and think, yeah, they're one of us. It's all a big distance running family. But those those guys over there, those women that are going over the water jumps and stuff, they're different in the head somehow. And I feel like it's the same in the sprints where everybody kind of looks over at the hurdlers and thinks, yeah, we're in the same family, but there's something different going on in your mind. Is that true? Um. I mean, I, I, assume, I feel like to be a 400 hurdles, hurdler, you have to have a little loose screw in your head somewhere because <laughs> <laughs> it's not fun training. There's nothing fun about it, but you have to make it fun. That's what we say every day. Like, we have to joke around. We have to have conversations about different things because training is just not fun, to be honest, because <laughs> you're just your body, um, pushing your body as far as you can go. Um, but at the end of the day, the end result is always the best thing. So I want to bring Evan in for a second. I don't want to leave you too much out, Evan, but when you got into this world with Johnny doing this documentary run of the picture about his build up to the 2016 trials, what was it like getting into that world? Was it, was it hard to understand it? What was your impression of it initially? Yeah, so I came into that world completely green. I mean, I didn't know much of anything. You know, I just knew the basics. You know, I'd watch the Olympics every four years and just enjoy that with family. Um, you know, I grew up playing tennis a little bit up until kind of mid-high school, and then I got really into filmmaking, and so I dropped my tennis racket and I picked up a camera. And so, you know, maybe there'd be an alternate universe where 
I do that. But I could see that kind of dedication from when I was playing back then in Johnny. And I could see because, you know, they're both kind of, you know, solo in what you do for the most part and that solo training mentality. And so I came in and I was like, man, this guy trains, he works. You know, I went on the track with him really for almost five years uh, making run of the picture. And, you know, you just see that work ethic and that tenacity and everything like that. And I mean, it was just impressive. But watching a sprint workout is a little bit different than watching like a distance runner's workout. Oh, yeah. You know, because you've got a lot of time between things, right? Where they're doing intense stuff for short periods of time and then there'll be a big rest. So what was your impression mm-hmm. of the training of watching it, watching that build up? Yeah. I mean, watching it unfold was surreal. So, you know, you know, here I am, I was just out of film school. I was looking for something to film and I was doing so many like corporate videos at the time, just trying to make some money in weddings. And I was kind of growing bored with what I was filming and there wasn't a lot of movement and a lot of action. And then fast forward, me and Johnny meet up and I'm watching him just zoom around the track. And I mean, I mean, the, the time was insane. And there, there were moments where I, I was like, yeah, you know, there's me and a buddy that started making this. And I was like, we can just follow one person on each side as they're running. And soon to find out, we're not going to be able to do that, handheld nonetheless. (laughs) And so, you know, it was a surreal learning experience. And so we had to change the way we filmed and change the way we approached it. But um, I think there is definitely, as you said, just such a difference in how that works. Because there is, you know, that rest period. You realize how important stretching is and how important kind of getting a routine and getting into a routine is and obviously johnny can speak to this probably far better than i can but just through the like sheer observation of it you just see how much goes into it that like you said isn't just the actual you know running and hurdling yeah ton of drills ton of strength mobility Mm -hmm. flexibility give us a little bit of a snapshot johnny on what a workout looks like for you so depending on the the part of the, the stage of the season, um, for example, the fall season, um, we work on a lot of mid-distance type stuff. So, I mean, a lot of 400 hurdlers train with the 800 runners. So we'll do things like uh, 10 400s with a minute rest is a workout we may do, which sucks. Um, we may do three 800s with um, eight to 10 minutes rest and you know, once we start that workout six weeks from there, we'll try to improve our time. So uh, with that workout, three 800s, we'll try to start with 220, uh, come through at 220. By the eighth week, we should be at 208, 207, doing all three 800s at 207, 205. Um, it's, a, it's a beast of a workout, um, but it, it definitely develops your stamina and um, it creates longevity, develops longevity for the rest of the season. Um, and then we do a lot of 600s, tons of 600s and lots of 200s. Um, and then we do um, something at our training camp called the cream um, where we run two to three miles and we try to run it, run it under a certain time. And we do that once a week. Um, so fall training is a lot of just distance and, you know, building stamina. And then once spring comes, uh, we speed it up. So we drop all that distant stuff. And the furthest we run is maybe 450. Um, mm-hmm. So it's 450 on down. You know, do anything from 150s to 250s to, you know, over the first three hurdles, over the last five hurdles, 
Um, it's so many, it's, it's so many things we do. We can work out with everybody. Part of the season, we're working out with the 800 crew. Uh, the second half, we're, we're, we're training with the 100 meter runners. You know, you have to get a little bit of everything. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think some people don't appreciate the stamina required to run one lap over hurdles. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of equate it to the 800 in a sense. You know, it's like you see people at the end of an 800 where they're, sw- I call it swimming. When they're sort of like trying to find the line and and everything in their legs is basically mm-hmm. shutting down at the same time, and I feel like you see that in the final forty meters of a four hundred hurdle too, where the body's just tying up. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like whatever you have after that last hurdle. If you can get to the last hurdle, <laughs> it's just like just hold on as long as you can. But that's definitely when the eight hundreds and the a thousands and all those that really comes into play. That's when you can really see who's putting in the work the last two hurdles, you know. So what's the longest you will run in that early season period? Is it those two to three mile runs? Yeah, and those aren't too fast. They're not competitive. So um, we really just go our separate pace, um, whatever works for each one of us individually. Um, but for me, I know 800s and 1,000s are those distances that really get me to where I need to be. So let's go back. I want to get some background on you from, at least from your words. How'd you get into running? Yeah. Um, well, my sister, I, I'm the youngest of me and my sister. Um, she ran track growing up and I used to just go out there and watch her uh, compete and train. Um, and eventually and they will always ask me, when are you going to come out and run? And I'm like, never. I'm never going to run track. <laughs> and then um, <laughs> one day at her hurdle practice, um, they were running hurdles. They are running about five hurdles. And I pulled a, I pulled a hurdle on the grass, and I, I ran over it. And I did it a few times, and the coach caught me. And he was like, you're a natural. And he was like, come bring your, bring your hurdle beside your sister's, and let's just start practice. So I put my hurdle beside hers, and I started training with all the older kids um and i was around 10 years old so after that it was a wrap and i started um competing competitively in the usatf uh division uh junior olympics all the way through high school and then you became an ncaa champion at south carolina yeah ncaa champion and sec champion and all those fun fun things (laughs) when did you know that this was something where you could be the best in the world? Um, I would say the 2008 Olympic trials. Um, I was 19 years old. And that year I was dealing with a little hammy issue. Um, so I didn't get to compete in the NCAAs my freshman year, um, the year that Joshua Anderson won. Coming out of high school, me and Joshua Anderson were kind of rivals. And they were saying, you know, who's going to be the best out of high school going into college? went into college and the first year we got to really compete, I got hurt and then he won NCAAs. Um, but then I was the one that went to Olympic trials and did really well. So we were always going back and forth. Um, but Olympic trials was that, that race where I knew I made it to the finals and I got fifth and, but it was a very close fifth. Like I just found that race weeks ago online. I don't know how I found it. Um, but when I watched that race, if I would have dove, I could have made the team. It was just so close. Um, and that was the year I think Angela Taylor, Brashawn Jackson, and Karan Clement went one, two, three. Um, 
So it was just a competitive year, but that was the race where I knew, okay, I'm running against the big guys and I can run with them, you know? Um, so that's when I knew I, I had great potential. And, and like most sprint events, if you're top three in the U.S., then you can compete with the best in the world because we have pretty damn good sprinting group always going to those big events. Yeah, definitely. I agree. So from there, you know, you're collegiate, you get fifth at the Olympic trials, barely miss the team. What is the decision process like as a sprinter when thinking about going pro? Um, it's like, I compare it to choosing a college when from high school to college, when you're trying to make that major decision that can change the rest of your life. I thought that would be the hardest decision ever because it does kind of direct your path and what you're going to achieve. Um, and so choosing a college was pretty difficult and I was like, Oh, everything else should be cake. Right. But once, uh, (laughs) I got all, all those offers, um, you know, people were telling me, you should leave. Everyone was telling me you should leave. You know, my coach wanted me to stay. You know, it, it was just a really hard to sit decision. And um, I really just had to sit back and, and tell myself. I had conversations with Natasha Hastings, and she had went professional a few years before me. And she, we were actually still training under Coach Fry. And, and she told me, hey, do you feel like you've achieved everything you, you could in college? Um, and I sat back for days, and I thought, like, can I achieve more? And I knew I could, but I think I was just so eager to be professional. Um, just the glamour of it. I was kind of green and I was just like, it'd be so dope to still be in college and still, and to be able to do what I love and get paid for it, you know? And also injuries happen any can, at any given moment, you know? So I was thinking, what if I'm not as fast the next year? You know, so I thought, why not just take advantage of this opportunity? And so that was my thought process is, you know, you never know what can happen next year. So why not just seize the moment now? Um, so I was kind of green. When did <laughs> so you I make that made, decision? You said what? When did you make that decision? Um, jun- after junior year. So junior year, I won NCAAs. And then at USA's that year, I ran 47. Um, and um, right after that, um uh, it took me a couple of months after I ran 47, and then I decided to forego my last year in college and run for Nike. But you still finished your degree. How did that play out? Yeah, yeah, that was the major focus, too. Um, I definitely wanted to finish. I only had one more year, so you know, why would I just stop? But I knew a lot of runners that did stop. Um, so I was like, I don't want to do that. I want to definitely get the degree because you never know what happens and you know what can, when, what can happen in sports. So I was just like, you know, if this sponsor can, you know, uh, support me going through this last year of school, I'll sign. And, um, and so that's what I did. I finished the last year and um, it was it felt like I was still in school. The difference was, you know, I didn't get to travel with the team or have that team companionship that I was so used to. So you were competing as a pro, although you were still studying. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you got your film degree, University of South mm-hmm. Carolina. Yeah. Which is cool. So talk to us about your start in film. How did that interest begin for you? Yeah, and so that that started um, around, uh, I was like 15, 16. My mom bought me my first video camera. Um, I had saw it in the magazine and 
um, I was always interested in film, but at that point I was like, I really want to learn how to record and film things. Um, before then I used to do a lot of plays in church and in school. So I was always interested in the arts, but once I got 16 and I was going through the magazine, I was like, this is something that I'm really, I want to experiment with. Um, so for Christmas, my mom bought me a video camera and from there it was a wrap. Um, I started to film everything from Thanksgiving to holidays to little home movies that I would create. Um, and my mother, she did foster kids growing up. So we had lots of kids coming in, in and out of the house. And so a lot of the times I would have the foster kids help me film things. <laughs> so I used to use that to my advantage. Um, but it was just a fun time. Um, so yeah, when I was 16, that's when I started. I got my first video camera. And after that, it was a wrap. I, um, in, co- in high school, I took a video course um, where we learned how to edit. Um, and yeah, from then I knew that's what I wanted to do. What drew you to that? Uh, I've just always loved the arts. Like growing up as a kid, I used to watch The Sound of Music over and over again, and The Lion King, and all those great big block, big blockbuster uh, hits like Jurassic Park. Um, I would, I knew, I, I knew there was something there because. Um, I don't know if you remember, but like the, the VHS tapes and they, they used to have the, the double VHS where you have the movie and then the other tape is the making of the movie. Right. And so I will yes. watch the making of over and, and over mm-hmm. again. Same. <laughs> That's content. like a filmmaker thing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Such a filmmaker thing. You're right. It really is. Like you're just watching the making of and you're so obsessed with it. And so I got. Yeah, I would do that back in the day too with movies I didn't even watch. I would just like watch the bonus features like pre-internet because there was, you know, right. What do you know? That's how you get onset education. Right. Exactly. Watch it. You know. <laughs> so, so from there it progressed, and mm-hmm. seemed to build in correlation with your track career. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had to learn how to the whole balance of both because they both take so much time. Um, it took some years to learn how to balance both because with filmmaking, as I know Evan can relate, the hours are so odd. Like sometimes you can be on set for eight hours and then other times you can be on set for 20 hours and then yeah. you're, you're, you're exhausted the next day. And then I, the next day I will have practice, you know? So I had to learn the balance and know when I could really put myself into a production and give it my all and then also give it, my all in track so it took a while to find the balance but what i do is after after each season when i have a break that's when i you know um i do a a production or something because i have free time and i know the hours are odd you know so it it just took a while to um develop the balance but i definitely feel like i i got it now and you were doing that like every single time pretty much that you had that break i noticed that like through the five years we were filming Johnny was always ready to go with something. And he was like, yeah, I just wrote this. Yeah, I just made this. I'm like, man, you don't stop. Like that's, I still don't know how he did it. And I spent five years with him. Like, <laughs> it's some magic sauce. Like, I don't know. It's crazy. Well, there's clearly passion in both places. So that helps. Talk sure. about Evan, talk about your, your start in film. How did you get into it? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, pretty similar to what Johnny said, it was always, you know, picking up the camera when I was young. I know my dad had a, you know, like family VHS camera that he'd use for like home movies and stuff. And I would always, you know, quote unquote, steal that and use it. And, you know, it was up on this big shelf and we were supposed to like, you know, be really careful with it because, you know, it was like some new electronics, but I always was grabbing it and using it and just making things. And then I'd put it back and then they'd see that there were like 
little movies and stuff i'd like film the neighbors or film like toys and stuff and they'd be like whoa what have you been doing and i'm like no it's just like what i'd rather be doing than watching tv was you know making it and so that kind of continued like similar to johnny said through high school i took a video production class and that was like right when youtube was coming around so you know internet was faster you could watch these you know skits and short videos online um and then when i went to college i went to east carolina university and got a film degree there and once i got through that i did you know documentaries um as well as you know narrative projects so i kind of like to bounce back and forth between the two um and so that's what was cool about johnny was you know johnny does a lot of narrative and you know i kind of bounce back and forth so when i'm doing a doc film like i did with run of the picture i wouldn't be doing a narrative film uh and so it would be good because i could spend some time on his sets and kind of get back in that world then it would make me want to go and make another script so it was, it was cool like that and how did you guys meet yeah um so i met johnny it was summer of 2014 and i was reading an article in the news and observer which is the uh newspaper in raleigh and they had just done a profile on johnny about his life as a you know track star but also he was making a zombie film at the time and i was like i mean that headline alone grabbed me and so i read the article and they like went on set with him on the zombie film and we're you know taking pictures kind of behind the scenes and so obviously the filmmaker in me was elated because i was like oh cool another film person in north carolina because there's a there's a few of us but there's not that many of us so it was always cool to just know there's someone else out there doing what you love uh but then when i saw the whole thing where he contrasted that with you know the track lifestyle i was like man we, we definitely got to meet up because i think there could be a story um and then i just hit him up and i said hey you want to meet for a coffee and then we we met and he realized i was not some just random person off the internet because so, i think i sent him a twitter dm at first i was like hey man what do you think about meeting up i like what you're doing in the uh north carolina area and then we just kind of like vibed from there so yeah you don't see too many track stars making zombie movies <laughs> no <laughs> it's a rarity so uh, so I wanted to now kind of take a now that we've got full more more complete context on both of you. I wanted to kind of take a little more random march through a few questions. One thing that fascinates me about creative people like the two of you is and and as somebody who a little bit understands from the podcasting world where I'm sitting here creating discussions, content, interviews into a mic you know, sometimes by myself, sometimes with two people, sometimes three people like now, and then you put it out to the world and you kind of hope that people respond to it and watch and listen right. or what, or whatever. And it's, you know, I think it requires a certain fearlessness to do that. And in my world, that's kind of tiny, you know, it's just audio, but for you guys with film and especially with creative projects, I think it is, it's a huge leap to go from an idea in your head to then fearlessly putting it into a project where you're, you're, you're doing a lot of work to get it out there and then put it out to the world and hope they like it. What is it that gets you over that fear that people will like what you're doing? <laughs> I don't know. That's that's a great that question. That is a great question. I think I think you have to um it takes it takes like a test run like when you first start doing it, you're really fearful of what people think and who will see it and what would they think. So, 
Um, but it always takes that that first project to get to get off those shake off those uh, cobwebs, you know. So it's just like putting it out there and just getting whatever feedback you get, you just deal with it. And I say after you put out your first couple of works, then it's just you're fearless at that point because you're like, okay, I've already put out this amount of work and whatever you, whatever criticism you get back, you just deal with it. Um, I know in the early stages when I started putting out stuff, um, I will always get a lot of criticism, more bad than good. Um, and I used to be so sensitive and that actually made me scared to put out work later because I would never get back really, really good criticism. So you know, when I would create things like the walk or the walking dead, um, dead day, um, I'd be like, should I really put this out? I will finish the whole production and then be hesitant. Cause I'm like, well, what if people don't watch it? What if it doesn't get the views? What if people think it's dumb? Um, and then all based off of my insecurity of my past work, but then I thought about it and I was like, I just got to put it out there regardless of what people think there'll be someone that will be inspired by it. Um, so I just take those risks and just put it out there and, you know, like hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. And that's, what's wild is like, if you didn't make dead day, we wouldn't have met. Cause then that article wouldn't have been made. That's true. Like you just never know. Um, and I can just speak to that too. And just say, I know from my own, you know, personal experiences with making films, there's so much content out there. Uh, you know, you wonder, is it going to get lost in that, you know, sea of, you know, movies and streaming stuff on Netflix and like, who's going to have the time. But, you know, like Johnny said, you know, the more you do it, the better you do become. And I think the hardest thing at first when you start um, is really finding your voice. So, you know, what style you are known for, what do you like to do? Cause you see, and you take in like so much film, like that's the one thing I realized before going to film school is, you know, is society we're just inundated with so many films and whether it's a good film or a bad film you you don't know and what your own style is until you just like try it and go for it a couple times and i think like once you do kind of like materialize that voice you suddenly say oh well now i know what i'm known for and you know if people like it that's great but if they don't i mean there's uh twenty thousand netflix shows coming out every week that they can go you know watch so <laughs> i'm sure they won't be too heartbroken that's how i look at it well i can tell i can say that both of you inspire me with that willingness to put stuff out there because i know that's hard as a creative person i i even was as i was prepping for this watching one of your films johnny the boy and boris and i was almost scared for you as i was hitting play thinking i hope this is good (laughs) what if he's a terrible filmmaker that's gonna make a really lame podcast but but of course it was good and really kind of cute and and cool story little you know mini story and so anyway it's it it was all good but it's just to me it's just such a sign of bravery and a sign of conviction that you have something to say you know because i think that's the other part of it is when you have something you really want to say you're convicted to get it out there regardless of what people are going to think and that often breeds the best work, right? Because you, you feel passionate about what you're trying, the message you're trying to deliver. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I agree. Yeah. That's that it is fearful. Cause you're like, when people press play, you know, are they going to like it? Are you, are they going to love it or are they going to hate it? You know what I mean? And I know anytime I put something out there at this point, I'm at the point where 
I'd rather have some type of criticism than nothing. If people aren't saying anything, um, that's a problem. I'd rather more people say I hate it mm-hmm. than say nothing at all. You know what I mean? So at least I know there's some room for improvement. You know what I mean? But if no one's saying anything, that must mean it's really bad. <laughs> so I'd rather be you know. <laughs> yeah. It's so major because like, I mean, I know even with run of the picture. Like, you know, you make, I've, I've never made something for five years. And I mean, obviously we weren't doing that every day for five years, but just like having this one thing that's always on the back burner for five years, you know, I made other films during that time that were, you know, in and out a couple months, couple weeks, you know, a year, maybe tops. Um, like even my first feature film was like less than a year. And so when I got to this and I cut it down and ended up being like, you know, a 30 minute piece, I was like, man, that's like five years into that. I wonder if I like, was it too much time? Is anyone going to care? Is it, are they going to get bored watching it? And, you know, you just have those like insecurities as a filmmaker that I think are totally normal. And like, you know, I'm not going to lie every once in a while, you know, I'll check the Amazon page and see if people reviewed it and be like, what did they think? And like, you know, that feedback I think is crucial. Um, Cause you know, whether they love it or they hate it, there's something in there that I can, you know, take with me to the next project ideally and kind of synthesize. So, so, in, in some ways, and I want to take this a little bit to track, Johnny, in some ways it's similar because to a track race because when you're standing on a start line and you're about to put you know, art in motion, so to speak, on a track, you're also at the behest of people watching, critics, you know, people that have standards about what they think you should be able to do. And you know, sometimes you deliver, sometimes you don't, but you have to have both a fearlessness on the start line that you're ready to accept whatever outcome, but also a, a thick skin on the other side to say, you know what? I did my best move on. If it wasn't the result that you maybe thought you could get. Yeah, I've definitely take taken that into filmmaking as far as developing uh, tough skin and track does really build you. It builds your character and it, and it shows you who you really are. There are times when you're going to run really well and everyone's going to celebrate you. And other times you're going to run like crap and no one's going to care. But that builds your character um, and it teaches you things. And that's what I take into filmmaking. Um, it's the same thing. Sometimes you're going to create great work. Everyone's going to love it. And then sometimes you're going to create something really bad and <laughs> everyone's going to be very critical. But you just have to you just have to roll with the punches. So speaking of punches, let's talk about the 2016 trials, which is obviously the big centerpiece of the story and run of the picture. Obviously, there's other components, but that's the the main arc of the the film is talking about your build to that race. You get to it, spoiler alert, you get fifth. You miss the team. You don't get the Olympic dream that you've had since at least 2008. Big failure. You were leading the whole race. I mean, it really came down to the final 50, 60 meters, maybe, to where things just kind of fell apart for you. And ultimately, you were passed by four guys really in the final 10 to 15 meters as things closed down there with Cron Clement getting the win in the trials. He went on to win Olympic gold in 2016. So, you know, you, you know that you could have beaten that guy on that day, but it just didn't play out that way. And you 
potentially could have set yourself up for a gold medal opportunity. It didn't happen. How have you dealt with that? Um, it's taken quite some time to get to a point where I could talk about it. I'm like I was telling Evan um, during our premiere, it was actually a moment that um, it kind of hit again, but I could finally deal with it. And I think working with Evan, it helped me deal with it <laughs> because I don't think if Evan would have never documented everything, um, I don't know. I don't know how my healing process would have been, but it's definitely helped me heal because I've had to face it. You know what I mean? Um, but it took a while and it hurt. It was like being in a relationship and being cheated on. <laughs> you got to go through the heartbreak. It was no fun. Um, I just went through phases where I was, you know, I dealt with sadness and depression and, um, you know, because I was always thinking of, of what if, what if I would have crossed the line third? You know what I mean? That was still an opportunity that could have turned big. Um, that moment could have changed my whole entire life. And that's what I always would think about. Um, but I just had to take the lesson out of it and try to improve myself. Um, it was unfortunate. Um, but like after the race, my head was down. I, I felt so ashamed. I, I, I just, I would walk with my head down all the way to the car, but I know halfway, um, the legend Carl Lewis, he actually stopped me and he was like, Hey bro, like you're still an awesome athlete and you have so much potential you're still young. You know, the next Olympics, you'll be 31. But he said, don't look at age as a factor. He told me, I don't remember the guy's name, but there was a guy that was 38 years old and he he tried out um, for the 200 and he actually made the team as a 38 year old as a sprinter. And that's rare. But he told me, don't let you know, don't let your age feel like that's a factor for you. He was like, if this is something that you truly love, keep going. And just that small um, word from him really encouraged me in that moment. Maybe I didn't really internalize it at the moment, but later I remember what he told me. And um, and so, because that's the biggest thing for me. I was thinking, well, I'm going to be older. I'm going to be too old. But age is nothing, but it's really mental. You know, it's really how you feel mentally than, than anything. So um, it took a while to really recover from that, but I'm at the point where I can really talk about it now. And I think the documentary uh, was very therapeutic. Yeah, Justin Gatlin, thirty-seven years old, still still going strong in the hundred. Uh, oh yeah, he's holding on. <laughs> so I want to talk about that home stretch because as I was there in the stadium watching the event, it was I remember it especially after I watched it back because you came in as the world leader from time, you know, in terms of time. In, coming into that mm -hmm. final. So you were basically the number one seed, you know, to use a, a, a basketball vernacular going into that event, the favorite, you know, you're in, I don't know if it was lane four or five, but you're right in the middle of the track where you want to be to be able to see everything that's going on. And you looked like a different athlete for the first 300 meters than you did for the last 100. Completely yeah. different just watching it. And so in your mind, what happened? What changed once you hit that, that home stretch? Um, well, honestly, I think even before the race started, um, I was so stressed out. I think I was putting a lot of um, – I was just putting a lot of pressure on myself than anybody else um, because it was a moment I had waited for so long. Um, I just put so much pressure on myself 
And I think that's what killed me. I don't think it was anything else but that. Um, I mean, of course, the weather wasn't perfect and it was a little wet. You know, maybe those are small factors. But overall, um, because, I mean, mind you, I compete really well when it's hot. Like when it's hot outside, I just go balls to the wall and I can do anything. But, you know, like it was started to rain and it started to chill down and it was wet and it started to really get in my head. And then all these other things like what if this doesn't work out, you know, and I just started to really pressure myself too much before the race. And I just psyched, I really psyched myself out. That's really what it was. So by the time I came through the home home stretch and I went over the ninth hurdle at that point, I was just like, is this going to happen? And I started to question myself. And as soon as I started to doubt myself, that's when, that's when Pandora's box just opened and everyone <laughs> ran past me. And, um, and it was just a disaster. It was it was like a complete nightmare. Now it's one thing if like it the first part of the race I was in the mix and I was I was in fourth and fifth the whole time and then I ended up being sixth or fifth. That's one thing. But like you were saying, to be in front and to have a gap and and then for it to close that much after the last hurdle, I was hoping. Well, maybe I can hold on to third. That was running through my head the whole time. As soon as I clipped the hurdle, I lost momentum. And I thought, just hold Dutch, just hold on to third. And I saw Karan um, on my right pass me. And I was like, okay, I can get second. Then somebody else passed me. And I was like, okay, at this point, all you have to do is manage third, the third spot. And at that point, just everyone started to pass me. And I was like, no, it's happening. I was like, this nightmare, like it's just like the movie Bring It On when <laughs> um, the main character she's cheering and then she she bends down, stands back up, and she's shirtless, and everyone's like, "Oh, you know, like," and it's just like a nightmare. And she wakes up. I was hoping I would wake up, <laughs> but I didn't. So it was just a disaster. But um, yeah, that's that's. I think I just psyched myself out. So you're in the stands, Evan, filming. And you know we're we're looking for the storybook finish, the fairy tale, to your doc, and and then this happens. What are you thinking? I'm just thinking whatever happens happens. I mean that was truly you know my mindset going into it because obviously, as we know, the world is a wild and crazy place. Anything can happen, um, and so that was it. I mean my thing was really I was just there to support Johnny. And really, no matter what happened, I knew that the doc was going to go on and that we had more story to tell. And, you know, there is that part of your brain that's like, you know, in a quote unquote perfect world, this one thing happens. But then there's so much story on the other side of that coin, too, you know, no matter what. And so when that happened, you know, we took about almost a year. I mean, after that off, just to kind of process, you know, we were both living in different states at the time. And so, you know, we left Oregon just kind of like needing to rest and recoup. And then we met up about a year later and we talked about it and we, you know, put that conversation on film. And so that's, I think a really powerful scene kind of towards the end of the movie. Um, you know, I won't, you know, cover it all here, but you know, Johnny really talked in my opinion, very well about that. And in a way that I don't know that I could, if I was in that position and he vocalized that incredibly maturely, um, and so I think it was just, yeah, for me, it was as weird as it sounds like an honor to be able to, you know, be that person to kind of, you know, a document the experience, but be 
watch someone grow through it and get stronger and then beat it and then go out into the world now 2019 with you know more courage more confidence you know a new film under their belt i mean it was actually a really pivotal moment obviously for the film just to see what happened afterwards so, so right after or pretty soon after you retire johnny you decide this isn't happening i'm going to focus on filmmaking but have since unretired are competing again why why did you quit and why are you back um because well the reason why i came back because i didn't want to finish my career as a quitter because um, I've never been a quitter. I've always fought through the end. Um, and so I knew if I wanted to leave my mark in track and field, if I wanted to be a, you know, a part of the great legacy, I have to keep going and, and try to reach my fullest potential as best as I can. And afterwards, if I've tried my best, then that's all I can do. Um, but I knew at that point, I pulled out too early. I was like, uh, I, I probably haven't uh, met or gotten to my fullest potential yet. I knew that there was still more in there. Um, at that point, I was just really emotional and I was just really hurt. Um, and then also, you know, aside from not being financially uh, supported and, you know, it being a struggle um, just to, you know, live day to day, that had a lot to do with it too. Um, you know, because at, at the end of the day, track isn't like football or basketball. You can be the one number one athlete in the world or even number five or three and be struggling. And it was something that I was dealing with at the time. Um, and I was like, I don't know if I want to deal with that anymore. Um, so it had a lot to do with that, too. I was like, do I, I love it, but do I love it enough to struggle the next four years? Or, you know, I didn't know what to expect. Um, so at that point, I just made an emotional decision. Um, but once I, I think I just needed a break. Um, but, and so once I took that break, um, I was like, okay, it's time to come back. Like, this is something I love too much and I'm still healthy. You know what I mean? So that was the biggest thing that, you know, I came back and I was still healthy. So now you're, you're going for 2020 Tokyo. I know you just got back from competing in Europe. It looks like you've run 49 low so far this year. And yeah. Olympic standard is 48.9. Your PR is in the high 47s, I believe. So you've got some work to do to get back on form. How is that coming? Um, it's coming along. Um, before I competed this year, it had been, I guess, two, I guess considered two years before, uh, since I had last my last race in 2017. So USA's was my last race before this season. So it had been two years since I actually competed. Um, so this year was just, of course, the goal is always to make the team medal. But the biggest thing this year was just to get back into it and just see where I can go and it be a lead way into next year because the next year is the most important year. Um, but I knew if I wanted to compete in 2020, I couldn't just come out of retirement in 2020 and expect great things to happen you have to go through the process. And so I was like, if I'm going to do it, I got to start again. So I figured why not one, one last time. Um, and so the biggest thing this year was just to see where I can push my body to. And like my training partner was telling me the other day to hit low 49 after two years of not competing. Um, it's pretty decent, you know? Um, so the biggest thing for me is just to go to trials. And at this point, 
I have nothing to lose, so I'm going to just go and have fun. You know, it's kind of wide open. Um, we have Rob Benjamin, who's running 47 low. He's somewhat in his own lane right now. But after him, it's pretty wide open. Everyone's running the exact same thing. So, um, you know, I'm going into the trials very optimistic, and I'm really just going to have fun and just and just run. So you will compete at USA's this year and try to make a world spot? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I consider, I thought about not doing it um, just because a lot of stuff outside of track. I was like, uh, maybe I'll just uh, wait till 2020. But um, but then I thought about it and I was like, I've trained 300 days out of this year. So I was like, I gotta, I don't want it to be in vain. So let me just take this risk <laughs> and go. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to go for it. Well, as you say, you, you really don't have anything to lose. So you never know. Yeah. Sometimes when there's no pressure like that, big things can happen. That'll be fun to watch. So yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about you as a person, Johnny. One of the things you talk about in the film is the challenge of being vulnerable as a black man and showing emotion when perhaps the norms would say that's not how you should act or operate. So talk a little bit about that. What's it like breaking that mold a little bit? You have the social construct of boys wear blue, girls wear pink. Um, That's what we grew up learning. But um, like the new millennial, the way we uh, internalize things and process things now is like, you know, boys can really be green or pink. That doesn't define their masculinity. You know what I mean? And so just in that aspect and um, in so many other ways, there are so many doors being open and molds being broken. So I just feel like, you know, in high school, it, you know, if you wear pink as a man, it's like, uh, you know, they question you. But now you wear it, it's not even a question. So we're just living living in a different time where you can really express yourself, and um, especially in the black community, um, is a stigma of being a certain way as a black man. Um, and so, just to be able to be vulnerable and it be embraced, um, it feels good. You know, I, you know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, as a black man, if I did cry or I did something out of the norm, or you know, if I was chose to be vegan or if I like to go to the library and read books, it's like, uh, it's like that's weird. But now it's actually pretty cool. You know what I mean? So times are changing. And so it, it, it feels good. It's liberating to be able to be any color and to be able to be vulnerable and it be okay. You know what I mean? Back in the day, it was like, uh, we don't, we're not used to this. We need you to be strong all the time. <laughs> now it's like, it's strong. It's actually a sign of strength to be vulnerable, not just for women, but for men as well. So you seem like somebody who has always been comfortable in your own skin. Has that always been true? Um, unfortunately, not. Now that I'm older, yes. Like at this point, I feel like by the time you turn thirty, you should start loving who you are because you you can't change anything. But um. I was very timid and shy growing up, uh, especially as a boy. I was very timid and shy, um, and I kind of grew out of it in college. Um, but even in college, I kind of held back. Um, I never was. I felt like I couldn't truly be who I wanted to be, just because as soon as I open up, people say, "Oh, you're a dork," or "You're a nerd," and then I would, I would 
go back. I would be like a hermit crab and go back under my shell, shell because I feel like people wouldn't accept me for being weird and liking art and film. Um, but now that I'm older, it's just I think it just comes with age and experience. At a certain point, it's just like, okay, this is who I am. You either accept it or you don't. <laughs> well, it's 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 refreshing because it definitely comes through that now you're that way that you're just comfortable with who you are, and that's really really cool and inspiring to see. For you, Evan, it seems like you didn't have any trouble getting Johnny to be himself on camera. Talk talk a little bit about that question mm-hmm. from your perspective. Yeah, like when we first started, obviously we didn't know each other super well. And we really got to know each other through the documentary, you know, through making Run of the Picture. And, you know, it's interesting you know, as I was editing the footage, right? So I'd been editing on and off for pretty much the five years. I really sat down and like hammered it out last year um, in the top of this year. And and I remember doing that, especially in the last year where I was really editing like hard and fast, getting it done. I would watch footage of like questions I would ask in 2014 when we first started. And I was kind of, you know, timid and shy. I didn't press as much as I could. But then by like 2015, 16, 17, you know, we'd known each other. And I felt comfortable asking those harder questions and kind of, you know, getting that vulnerability, right? Because at the end of the day, for the film to work, both, you know, Johnny and I have to be vulnerable in the process and we have to have those conversations and, you know, share that knowledge because I think that's what helps people. And that's what allows, you know, someone watching the film, if they're, you know, home one day, they see it on Amazon, they watch it. Uh, you know, they take something away from it. The only reason they're going to take something away from it is because we had something to say, kind of like you were mentioning earlier in the podcast, you know, you really have to have uh, some substance. And so, yeah, I think that was, that was interesting, you know, getting him to open up and Johnny was always very much an open book. And that, that's what I thought was great because, you know, I know it's, it's hard to have some random dude with a camera in your face, you know, following you for years and years, but, but Johnny uh, did such a cool job with that. I was really impressed. So it seems like being a filmmaker, especially a new filmmaker, isn't easy at all. <laughs> Getting your break, so to no. speak, watching, <laughs> reading up wrong. on both of your yeah. careers and your starts and doing the work that you've done. It seems like it's pretty hard. Johnny, I saw you talking about sleeping in your car while you were filming your your first feature-length film, Float. In Atlanta, you're sleeping in your car, you're working on set, you're doing camera stuff, you're doing you know all the work associated with making a film. What what are the hardships like in that world? We'll start with you on that question, Johnny. You just have to use the resources you have and make it work. Um, I know when I was living down in Atlanta, um, I was working a couple of jobs and and then um, I wanted to and I, and I had just finished writing the script and I was like I gotta. If I wanted to come to fruition, I have to, you know, put in the work. So I found some actors who, you know, were willing to do it out of the goodness of their heart for free. This was a huge blessing. Um, I even had an actor come all the fly all the way down from New York because he he really believed in in my work so much that he was willing to take that chance. So it was a pretty big deal for someone to do that. Um, and so when he decided to do that, this, that's when I knew I really had to really go forward with the production because I was like, if he believes in it that much, then I have to believe in it too. Um, and, um, you know, I was living on, on my best friend's couch, you know, and 
eventually got to move out. But when I moved out, didn't really have anywhere to go. Uh, but I knew we were in the middle of filming, um, and we still had a lot more to do. So I just have I just had everything piled up in the back of my car, and every night um, it was the summertime, so it was really hot outside. So I, I would sleep. I would find somewhere to park, and I roll down on my windows, and I'd be like, "Hey, if someone's gonna." Rob me tonight. They just don't have to. They don't have to. I'm gonna have to fire them because it's just too hot to sleep with the windows uh, up. <laughs> so it was like sleeping in the sauna. Um, and there were a few nights where cops would come and they'd be like, "What are you doing here? You can't sleep here." So some nights I would just be driving around um, trying to find somewhere to sleep, and 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 then I would have to wake up and film, meet the actors to film the next scene. You know, and I would be on set and they would have no clue that. You know, I only had an hour of sleep, <laughs> but, you know, I, I didn't want them to know. I just wanted them to to just do the work that they needed to do to bring the story to life. Um, so it, it was really challenging. And there are moments where my car was breaking down and um, in the middle of filming, um, like me and one actor, we were on our way to film a scene and my car broke down. And I was just like, bro, I don't think we're going to be able to finish this film. We only had a few scenes left, and he stood by my side. He was like, I got you, man. Like, we're going to do this. And and eventually, yeah, I got everything together, um, and we finished the film. Um, but I really, you know, filming that, that feature, I thought it wasn't going to uh, come to fruition because just so many things were hitting me. Um, but I just, I just, I just, I just continued to uh, believe in, and have faith, and um, it worked out. Um, and then once once we got we completed everything, I came home because I was like, I can't keep doing this. It's pretty, it's too difficult. Um, but um, I'm I'm glad I, I hung in there. So now, in a sense, you're a starving artist and a starving track star. <laughs> right, just just hungry, you know. I just I need, <laughs> I need help with every 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 way of life at this point. Like, but it, I feel like it's worth it just because. Um, I love what I'm doing. You know what I mean? I feel like if you're doing something that you love to do and you're not getting paid for it, but you can still do it, I feel like that's your purpose. You know what I mean? You can do something where you're getting paid tons of money, but you can be miserable. Um, but that's how I know this is my purpose and I love to do it. And if I just keep sticking to it, you know, eventually something will happen. Well, it's it's a cool it's a cool story and it's good to see it looks like you've got that first feature represented at some film festivals and things like that so it looks like things are starting to tick a little bit which is pretty cool that's the hardest thing is like making your first one you know because once you do that at least you have it out there but it's so hard to start like so as as the filmmaker telling johnny's story what do you want people to take away from it Man, there's so many takeaways, but I think at the end of the day, it's that determination. I saw that day one when I was on the track, when I was on the film set, when I first met Johnny. You know, it didn't matter if we were, you know, the first part we were making a zombie film in a warehouse. And that's the like one of the first things I noticed. And kind of rewinding a little bit, back when Johnny said that he was going to retire in 2016, there was a part of me that was like, I wonder if he'll come back because he's got that dedication. And I saw it that first day on the film set. Like he was, you know, filming the zombie film. There were probably like, I don't know, 30 people, you know, like 20 zombie extras in full makeup. And 
Johnny was like, there was like a makeup person and then Johnny did everything else. He was running the camera. He was directing, he was catching audio. He was, you know, helping people get changed. Like, I mean, it was, you know, get their makeup and costume on. Like it was wild. Like in one person doing that, like talk about one man band. And like, I've done that a little bit in filmmaking, but you know, usually you try to have a crew uh, just to help you out. And so, you know, I knew that was part of the thing that I think people can take away is, you know, if you really set your mind to something, you know, as cliche as it sounds, you can make it happen. And whether it's on the track or on the set, Johnny did. And I think he's living proof of it. And so I think, you know, if anyone watches the film, I hope they take that away and kind of say, you know, if I have one dream, if I have two dreams like Johnny, I mean, if they have four dreams, 10 dreams, I don't know, there is a way to do it. Uh, it's just, it's getting creative with it and finding the way. He's got the hustle for sure. That's obvious. <laughs> he does. He does. Well, last question for you, Johnny, before we kind of wrap it up with details on how to watch. Are you a filmmaker or are you a track athlete? First and foremost, which is it? <laughs> it's funny. I've been asked that before. It was, I think it was like a couple of years ago when someone asked me that. Um, that's a really funny question. I would say track athlete um, just because that's, I guess, provided – more of a living for me um, versus uh, film. And um, I've, I've experienced so much of life because of track and field. So many doors have opened because of track and field. And because of track and field, I've been able to finance my own pro- projects, productions. So track and field has definitely helped me in so many ways, more than one. So um, I would say I'm definitely a track athlete first because, um, I mean, out the wound, I was running, you know? Nice. All right, so Evan, give us the details on where people can watch Run of the Picture if they want to. Yeah, so any of y'all that do want to watch Run of the Picture, it is currently streaming in full on Amazon Prime Video. So if you use Amazon for like ordering stuff, you can actually watch it for free. Um, if you don't have Amazon Prime, you can you know rent it or whatever. Um, and we have an Instagram account, Run of the Picture. Same with. Uh, twitter as well so you can keep up with us on there and uh you know share with your friends we put some like trailers and cool behind the scenes clips on that sometimes so it's 30 minutes well worth the watch and if they wanted to follow your other work evan where would they find that yeah uh so you could check it out at rocksetproductions.com i've got a short tv show i made for amazon on there as well as a feature film and a couple short documentaries obviously as well as run of the picture and then like my personal social is at Mr. Evan kid. If you want to follow along with what I'm doing. Awesome. Johnny, same for you. How do people watch your stuff? Um, so a lot of my stuff is on social media. Um, I'm Dutch filmmaker on Twitter and Instagram. And a lot of times I'll have links to my work. Um, and, or you can go to my Vimeo, Vimeo.com slash Johnny Dutch, or just go to Vimeo.com and search Johnny Dutch in the search engine. And I'm, probably the only one so i'll pop up and um a lot of my work is on there so either vimeo um you can go to youtube and just type in my name and most of my stuff will pop right up well it's been a real pleasure talking to you guys johnny we are rooting for you both this year at usa's but certainly next year at the olympic trials we hope you you can get it done but either way we'll, we'll, we'll watch and cheer and be excited for you so thanks thanks for doing what you're doing and for inspiring in the ways that both of you are Thanks. I appreciate it, man. Thanks, man. Johnny Dutch and Evan Kidd, everyone talking about their recently released documentary on Johnny Dutch called Run of the Picture. 
as they said, you can now check that out on Amazon Prime. Watch it streaming for free. As I said, really worth 30 minutes of your time. I think you'll be a fan of Johnny's after watching and then have somebody else to cheer both at USA's coming up this next weekend as well as at the Olympic trials next summer building to Tokyo. So I hope you enjoyed that interview. I wanted to quickly apologize for the issues with Johnny's audio to the tail end of of that interview. That was all happening on his side and I was able to clean it up quite a bit, but unfortunately there was still some scratchiness in that audio towards the end there. So apologies for that. I hope you were able to still kind of work through and hear what he had to say at the end there. All right, so that's it for episode 140. I wanted to thank Evan and Johnny, of course, for joining me, and thank you for listening. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.